Welcome to Inside IR, a podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the Australian industrial relations landscape. Hello and welcome to Inside IR, the Australian industrial relations podcast, the series that arms HR, IR and legal professionals with the latest industrial relations thinking. My name is Rowan Doyle. I'm a partner in the industrial relations team at Herbert Smith Freehills. And I'm very excited today to be joined on Inside IR for her first appearance, Sophie Beeman. Welcome, Sophie. Hi, Rowan. Very excited to be here today. It's great to have you for your first appearance on Inside IR. For those that don't know Sophie, Sophie is an executive counsel in our Sydney industrial relations practice. And Sophie has been in IR now for about 12 years, focusing on a range of sectors, including finance, healthcare, construction and resources and has a wealth of experience to share on the industrial relations and, and bargaining front. So we're very much looking forward to your insights today, Soph. How are you feeling about Thanks, your Rowan. first appearance, by the way? Yeah, I don't know how I've managed to avoid it for the first, what, 12 episodes. So I'm very glad to be here today and glad we've been able to make it work. Your, uh, your first and it won't be your last. And our viewers might have noticed this is a little bit of a different format that we've got on today. We're actually trialling a new method where we're filming in two different locations, the, the wonders of modern technology. Uh, and so welcome any feedback that our viewers and listeners have on, on that new format. Uh, the, uh, the backdrop behind me is not quite as exotic as previous episodes. And I think you're doing a bit better on that front, Soph. But anyway, we'll see how this one goes and, and we'll push through. Now, um, so if, as you probably know, our first 11 episodes of Inside IR have been very much focused on IR reform. I think of those, about 10 of them have been on IR reform. And what's that, what that's meant is that we've been a little bit distracted. Uh, we haven't spent as much time as we otherwise might focusing on the BAU, the cases that are being handed down in the Fair Work Commission, in the federal courts, they're all still very much important. And as we know, to be good industrial relations practitioners, you really need to know the law like the back of your hand. You need to know these cases, you need to know the boundaries, because that's the only way you can really maximise the opportunities and, and reduce the threats that are presented through our IR system. So we, what we have done so far, we've painstakingly reviewed all the cases that have been handed down uh, since December 2022 up until June 2023. And we've hand selected what we think are the top six cases that IR practitioners need to know about. We've, we've previously done a similar episode of this type where we've selected our top six. And like that episode, we haven't necessarily chosen the top six that are most front of mind, the ones that have obtained the most airplay or most media but rather the ones that might have scooted under the radar, so to speak, and are nevertheless really important for IR practitioners to know about. And so we'll continue to do this fairly regularly through future episodes of Inside IR as well. And we've got actually a quite interesting cross-section, I think, so for today to work through of those six cases. The first one, we'll start with Sydney Trains. It's a relatively rare wages and conditions arbitration by the Fair Work Commission which uh, will give us a bit of insight, I think, into how the Fair Work Commission might approach the arbitration of terms and conditions, including through the new intractable bargaining jurisdiction. Second, we'll then move to Lloyd Helicopters, an unsuccessful application by the employer to suspend and terminate protected industrial action due to threatened danger to health, welfare uh, of part of the population. 
Third, we'll cover the Santos scope order decision in which the AWU and AMWU were successful in obtaining an order to force Santos to negotiate a single enterprise agreement covering multiple work groups, as opposed to Santos's preference to continue negotiating two separate agreements. Fourth, we'll move to the decision of Deputy President Bell in Monash University, where Monash unsuccessfully applied to vary their enterprise agreement to correct an alleged ambiguity or uncertainty. And it's a rather fascinating decision because it was an attempt by Monash University to head off uh, a proceeding involving an alleged underpayment of wages. So a very uh, topical and timely decision, very much looking forward to that one. Fifth, we'll cover the Ausdrill full bench decision in which the Fair Work Commission rejected Ausdrill's application for approval of their enterprise agreement, primarily on the basis of the explanation that had been given to employees about the terms of that instrument and the effect on employees. And that's a particularly timely decision, particularly given we now have much more onerous obligations following changes that have been made to the genuinely agreed test. And then finally, number six, we'll finish on Virgin's unsuccessful application for orders cooling off, uh, cooling off or, or suspending protected industrial action for their proposed agreement. Now, what's interesting in all of these cases, this certainly hasn't been deliberate, but uh, five of the six actually involve an unsuccessful application by an employer. So hopefully uh, that's not a sign of a trend or a sign of things to come, but that certainly is a common feature of these decisions and we'll uh, talk about that a little bit more as we go through each of them. So there's a nice broad cross-section there, so something in this for everyone. Uh, so we won't waste any time, we'll get straight into it, starting with the Sydney Trains decision, Soph. Yeah, thanks, Rowan. Um, so I think anyone who commutes in New South Wales, whether you're an IR practitioner or not, uh, would be very well aware that Sydney Trains and New South Wales Trains has been engaged in some very protracted bargaining for the last couple of years for a replacement enterprise agreement. Um, fortunately for us commuters, uh, they were able to reach in principle agreement on the terms of an enterprise agreement, um, subject to two issues that weren't resolved between the parties. And one of those issues, very importantly, of course, was the applicable wages under the agreement. So the parties left those two issues to the Commission to determine after the agreement was approved. So this decision is the full bench's arbitration of what was brought as a Section 739 dispute uh, to resolve these two issues. So the agreement did actually include um, some provisions in relation to pay increases. Uh, it had a kind of upfront $4,500 bonus that was payable to employees, and then it had two increases during the life of the agreement, uh, one for 2.53%, one for 3.03%. Um, and the uh, employers argued that there shouldn't be any further increases awarded by the Commission, primarily on the basis that they said the increases that were in the agreement were consistent with the New South Wales uh, public sector policy on wages, and they said they were otherwise fair and reasonable. Unsurprisingly, the unions argued that there should be additional increases awarded, uh, essentially to a total of 6% uh, year on year for three years of the term of the agreement. And the Commission ultimately did award further increases, uh, but of only an additional 1% for the final two years. 
And so at first blush, I think this decision might seem like it's very, you know, specific to New South Wales trains and uh, Sydney trains and, of course, to the terms of their enterprise agreement because obviously Section 739 disputes often are. Um, but the reason that we picked this one to talk to you about and why we think it's really interesting uh, is because it gives some really helpful guidance, we think, about how the Fair Work Commission might approach wage determinations as part of its new intractable bargaining workplace determination jurisdiction. Um, we have, of course, done another podcast episode on that previously, so plug for that to go listen to it if you haven't already. Um, but I think what this decision really does is it emphasises the importance of expert evidence and how that's going to be approached both by parties in these kind of wage determination cases as well as by the Fair Work Commission. Um, so here, both parties relied on their own expert evidence of economic consultants to support their position. Um, and the Fair Work Commission uh, really closely scrutinised that evidence and the basis for um, the different uh, positions that the parties had arrived at uh, and really showed a kind of a willingness to engage with that evidence at a very close level. Um, interestingly, the Commission also relied on its own economic research team um, and CPI data and um, RBA inflationary forecasts to come to its decision. And what the Fair Work Commission did is it considered the impact of inflation on real wages from the nominal expiry date of the previous agreement up until the nominal expiry date of the current agreement. And relying on all of that evidence, um, it did find that there was going to be a significant decline in real wages of employees over the life of the agreement. Uh, and, and that was really relied on to support the Commission's uh, decision to award further increases under the agreement. But what the Commission did do is it noted that the kind of maintenance and increase of real wages is a medium to long-term objective. You can't expect that every single year of the nominal term of an enterprise agreement, you're going to have um, that kind of maintenance or increase of real wages. Um, and it also commented, particularly in a, a high inflationary environment, you can't expect that kind of automatic wage indexation. So those factors are what kind of reduced or, or capped the increases that the Commission uh, was prepared to make. Some other comments that the Commission made in this decision, which I think are going to be equally relevant to the Commission's new intractable bargaining workplace determination jurisdiction, um, are comments that the Commission made around this not being some kind of arbitrary uh, you know, wage fixing exercise and its consideration of what was fair and reasonable for these workers. Um, and similarly, that this wasn't a task analogous to uh, you know, fixing minimum rates under modern awards but rather it was a private arbitration uh, and it was, you know, in consideration of the arguments that the parties had raised and the context of their industrial dispute. And I think it's important to keep that in mind uh, as part of the Commission's new jurisdiction as well. Um, the Commission did also note a couple of factors that the parties hadn't raised but it thought could have otherwise been relevant. And I think they're also interesting uh, to just reflect on because, again, they're likely to be relevant as part of the new jurisdiction. Um, so they included that the employers hadn't raised uh, any submissions or led any evidence as to um, the financial or commercial impact of further increases on them. Um, equally, neither of the parties had raised any evidence about the impact of increases on the New South Wales economy. So there weren't those kind of broader public interest considerations that might be relevant. 
Um, and the unions hadn't run any case around kind of a change in work value, which they said warranted the pay increases. Uh, they had made some broad submissions in relation to improvements to productivity, which they said warranted further increases. Uh, but the commission held that you know, there was no evidence which actually supported those very broad submissions. And so uh, they didn't warrant any further increases. Um, so I think this decision, until we get some uh, decisions under the Commission's new jurisdiction, which uh, hopefully we do get relatively soon, uh, as I say, does provide some really helpful guidance as to how the Commission's going to approach that exercise. It, it's a very big warning, though, that reference to work value claims, though, Soph, isn't it? I mean, you'd expect unions to take note of that. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing uh, that allegation being made in the context of arbitrations uh, on wages and conditions going forward, uh, allegations that work value has shifted over time and some evidence led in support of that um, and in support of consequential wage increases as, as a result in changes to work value. So I think employers need to be very cognizant of that and, and prepared for those arguments. But I think the most fascinating aspect of this case, I think, and one of the important takeaways for employers is just the way in which this was utilised to resolve the bargaining process. Because as we know, I mean, the common common avenue where there's an intractable bargaining is to head into the Fair Work Commission under a Section 240 conciliation. And on occasion, it doesn't happen too often, but there is the power for the parties to agree for uh, the Fair Work Commission to arbitrate on certain conditions. The problem with that Section 240 arbitration, of course, is that the Commission issues a recommendation. It still needs a vote. It still requires the employees to vote it up. And in theory, the employees may not do that, which then leaves the employer in a bit of a difficult position. But the, the really great thing about uh, what the um, employer did in this case is that they actually resolved the enterprise agreement. As you mentioned, Soph, they, they settled on some base level wage increases. The agreement was made, so the bargaining was done and they empowered the Fair Work Commission to arbitrate on whether any additional wage increases would be awarded. Now, the beauty of that is the parties are then stuck with the outcome. Bargaining is complete. There's no risk of returning back to the bargaining table. There's no need for another vote. So it's, it's, a, very, it's a very good strategy, I think, for employers to, to think about utilising when they've been through you know, an extensive bargaining process and they're left at the end with a small number of discrete issues that they just can't resolve. It's a much safer mechanism to use than going through the alternative, a 240 arbitration process. So, yeah. the, the flip side of that, Rowan, interestingly, I think is for an employer, it gives them a, a degree of uncertainty as to what their ultimate outcome is going to be. Because as you say, they're stuck with the agreement and the arbitrated outcome. And wages is obviously, you know, a really important part of that. And so there's a degree of uncertainty as to what they're going to be stuck with. Um, so an interesting it's, risk to take. It's a really, really good point. And I think it comes down to this, this is probably something we've touched on in previous episodes, but for employers who prepare well and have great justification and evidence-based justification for the positions they take in bargaining, then employers should be able to be relatively confident in going into that arbitration process and knowing at least uh, what the likely parameters are of the Fair Work Commission's findings. And it's of course possible also to set the outer limits of what the Fair Work Commission is empowered to order in the agreement as well which would you know, all come down to the negotiations. There's lots of options there to, to work through. So I think very much a worthy inclusion in our top six, which I think brings us to number two, Lloyd Helicopters. 
in which Lloyd Helicopters applied to terminate a planned 48-hour work stoppage of protected industrial action and an ongoing ban on communication outside of working hours. And that application was made under Section 424 of the Fair Work Act, which we know is based on the um, allegation that industrial action has threatened to endanger the life, personal safety, health or welfare of part of the population. Now, the application in this case, it wasn't successful. Uh, the protected industrial action that was the subject of the application really only related to their offshore operations. And, and the focus of that industrial action was on some particular duties that were performed by Lloyd Helicopters. And they included technical emergency flights uh, to and from Broome to the uh, Prelude um, offshore operation. It also involved some tasks that Lloyd Helicopters were engaged to perform for the WA state government in the context of providing assistance during natural disasters. And it also related to a helicopter sharing arrangement that they'd entered into in Karatha with multiple clients, which involved them servicing offshore oil and gas facilities, including passenger transfer flights, medivac flights and related emergency support transfers. So that was really the focus of the application. And the um, application related to the concern about the impact that the industrial action would have on those, let's call them the emergency type functions that were performed by Lloyd Helicopters. Now importantly here, the union, as the union often does in scenarios like this, the union provided undertakings, which were designed to give the employer some comfort that the industrial action wouldn't impinge on some of these emergency type activities. And they were quite extensive, those undertakings. The union relied on those in support of their defence in alleging that there was no sufficient threat of endangerment to health, safety, welfare to the part of the population. Now, in this case, importantly, the Fair Work Commission accepted that the relevant part of the population that we were talking about here were those individuals that required emergency evacuation the precise duties and functions that Lloyd Helicopters were engaged to do. And the key issue in dispute that, that really led to the ultimate outcome here was, do you just focus on the relevant threat in the event that there is such an emergency? Or do you actually, in assessing whether there's a sufficient threat, do you actually have to factor in the fact that there may well not be such an emergency that arises during the period of the industrial action? Because as you can tell, how close that threat is will be very different depending on which of those two approaches you take. The employer, of course, said, no, you've got to focus on, let's assume that an emergency arises and then based on that emergency, assess whether or not there's a sufficient threat of endangerment to life, health, safety. The union, on the other hand, said, no, you need to factor in the, the fact that there may well not be such an emergency arising in the first place. The Fair Work Commission decided that the correct approach was the latter, you needed to factor in the, the very fact that there may well not be an emergency in that time frame. But importantly, you also needed to factor in mitigation options that were available to the employer to reduce that threat, the danger to health, safety and welfare. And in this case, the Fair Work Commission found that there were quite a number of opportunities available to reduce the impact of the industrial action and reduce the risk of that threat. So whilst there was a possibility of that endangerment, it wasn't probable. And I think that really highlights the difficulties with applications like this. Employers need to be very confident in their evidence that they're leading about 
how likely the threat to the endangerment to health, safety and welfare is. How close is that threat? How likely is it to occur? And evidence needs to be led about the lack of other alternatives to mitigate that threat. And that, that's really the, the missing piece in this application and a big reason as to why Lloyd Helicopters was unsuccessful. The final point the Federal Commission noted, which is interesting, is that even if evidence fell the employer's way and the Commission was satisfied that there was a sufficiently probable threat to the endangerment of health, safety, life and welfare, then the Commission was more inclined to suspend the industrial action rather than terminate it. Now, we'll all know that the implications of terminating industrial action through an application like this is that it effectively ends the bargaining. It sets us on a path to a, a potential workplace determination, and it really removes a lot of the leverage that the employees and union would otherwise have had in embarking upon their industrial action campaign. And the Commission was very live to that. They said that bargaining was at a relatively early stage here, not much industrial action had been taken, and for that reason, to the extent there was such a threat to health, safety, life and welfare, then the appropriate course would be to suspend the action for a brief period to address the threat. And I think that's really important for employers to keep in mind too. This is not necessarily always going to be a way in which you're able to end the bargaining process and push it down a path of arbitration. In many cases, the more likely outcome is a temporary uh, respite from that industrial action. So, so I think that leads us then to the next case, uh, which might lean on you for, Soph, to give us an overview of, and that's the Santos scope order decision. Yeah, of course. Um, and it's probably one a lot of you are maybe familiar with. It got a lot of kind of Workplace Express article headlines over the last few months. Um, so here, Santos had commenced bargaining for two enterprise agreements, essentially one covering its downstream employees in a particular area and one covering its upstream employees in the same kind of area. Um, and those employees at the time were uh, covered by just one agreement covering both sets of employees or both groups of employees. And so the AWU and the AMWU applied for a scope order to consolidate those two bargaining um, streams and to bargain for an enterprise agreement, which essentially mirrored the coverage of the existing agreement. So, of course, to make a scope order, as all of you know, the Commission has to be satisfied uh, relevantly that making the order would promote the fair and efficient conduct of bargaining, um, amongst other things, and also that it would be reasonable in the circumstances. Um, so one of the interesting legal points of this decision is that the parties uh, had a different view as to the proper approach to that first test, the fair and efficient conduct of bargaining. Um, so Santos argued that the Commission had to be satisfied that the order would promote both the fair and efficient conduct of bargaining, whereas the unions claimed that the uh, current case law uh, supported the position that the Commission only has to be satisfied of one of fair or efficient. Unfortunately for us, um, the Commission here decided that it wasn't a decisive point in this application um, and so didn't resolve this issue. So that's still potentially a live issue uh, in scope order applications. As I said, the Commission didn't think it was decisive here because the Commission was satisfied that making the order would promote both the fair and efficient conduct of bargaining. Um, and the Commission goes through kind of the various arguments and factors that uh, all of the parties raised here, but I think what was most determinative in it making uh, that the decision that it would promote the fair and efficient conduct of bargaining um, was 
that it didn't give much weight to Santos's arguments in relation to the differences in kind of the operations and working arrangements of the two different employee groups or cohorts. Um, and I think a big part of that was the Commission relying on the fact that the existing agreement covered both those groups and it had provisions which dealt with differences in working arrangements or operational differences between the two. Um, so was satisfied that a combined scope could address those issues. Um, the Commission was also satisfied that previous rounds of bargaining with that combined scope were more efficient than the current bargaining. Um, and I think another really important factor for the Commission was its view that the uh, claims in both sets of bargaining were very similar um, and the remaining claims for resolution were also quite similar and overlapped. And to the extent that there were differences in those claims, the Commission was satisfied that they could be dealt with as part of one agreement. Um, so, as I say, ultimately, the Commission rejected Santos's arguments in relation to um, there being differences between those two employee cohorts, which made it more fair and efficient to deal with them as part of two different scopes. Um, the Commission was also satisfied that it would be reasonable in the circumstances to make the order. Um, it held that even though it didn't have views directly of employees, it was satisfied that the union's um, views and representations and submissions made as part of the application did represent the views of employees. Um, and importantly and interestingly, uh, and Rowan, I know you've got some thoughts on this, the Commission uh, made the comment in relation to reasonableness that the making of the order itself didn't materially impact Santos's ability to continue bargaining in good faith um, for a different scope of the agreement, so questioned kind of the practical um, limitations that making the order might place on Santos. So I think this decision really does emphasise the Commission's preparedness to make these kind of scope orders where there is disagreement between the parties, but I think most relevantly where the scope being sought reflects the scope of the current agreement um, and the difficulty an employer might have in resisting that kind of application if it's not able to uh, establish to the Commission's satisfaction changes that might warrant a departure from that existing scope. Yeah, it's a good point, Soph. I think we still have a degree of uncertainty in the case law as to what the implications of a scope order are. We've previously commented on this in the context of the utilities management decision in previous episodes, and I think that that uncertainty, I think, continues under this decision. It seems to leave the door open for an argument that no question that the employer can continue to pursue the negotiation for an alternate scope in tandem with the scope that set out the, the scope order. What's less clear is can the employer, without the agreement of the bargaining representatives, put that alternate scope to a vote? And there's no, no clear express statement in the legislation that says you can't do that. All it says is that if there is a scope order, then uh, the, there's an additional factor that needs to be taken into account in the approval process, and that is whether approval of the agreement would be inconsistent with good faith bargaining. Now, it seems to me that it would be um, a decision rule, so to speak. The Fair Work Commission doesn't like decision rules um, to the extent that it said that a scope order automatically means that you are not complying with the good faith bargaining requirements by putting an agreement to vote that's inconsistent. But in any event, there's just some personal views on that issue. Um, I'd expect to see some clarification of that through the Commission and the courts over, uh, over time. But it also raises the question, so scope orders, it's a question as to whether or not there's the capacity for the employer to actually try and defer the issue of scope in the negotiation such that it doesn't become a sticking point. I mean, often that's easier said than done, but 
in one sense, at least as a matter of theory, it's possible to say, look, let's actually just focus on the terms and conditions that apply to those work groups. Leave scope till the end. Let's see where we land on all these things. We'll manage the logistics around it and do that really efficiently so it's not an issue. And we'll come back to scope at the end, see where we land on all these things. And often that's a very effective strategy and actually can avoid disputes of, of this nature, if at all possible. Which brings us to the Monash case, so a very interesting case. Yeah, it is. It was a, a kind of good try by Monash. Um, so this one was an application by Monash under Section 217 of the Act to vary their enterprise agreement to remove ambiguity or uh, uncertainty in relation to some very complex clauses of their enterprise agreement, which I won't go into in detail, uh, but really relating to what type of work or how work should be characterised um, and at what rate of pay it should be paid at. And so the application was brought in the context of related kind of underpayment proceedings and claims by the unions in relation to those clauses. Um, and so Monash made this application to vary the agreement to resolve some of those ambiguities which were driving these underpayment issues um, and made the application to do so retrospectively as well. So a, a kind of very creative um, idea and approach for Monash if they had been able to pull it off. So the Commission approached the exercise of determining uh, this application with reference to two steps. First of all, the kind of threshold jurisdictional issue of was there an ambiguity or uncertainty? And then if so, should they exercise their discretion to vary the agreement to resolve that? So in relation to that jurisdictional threshold issue, there's a really helpful summary of a recent full court decision in relation to this, which if you ever need to look at it, go to the case and have a look. It kind of summarises the principles very neatly. Um, but essentially the takeaway uh, by the commission here was that's a really low bar. Um, you know, if you can show any degree of uncertainty in relation to how clauses operate, you're going to be able to meet that threshold issue. And so here the commission was satisfied that there'd been some kind of valid arguments um, as to alternative contentions or interpretations that may be available of these clauses uh, and that there was an arguable case in relation to those different contentions and that was sufficient to meet that jurisdictional threshold. So the Commission then turned itself to a consideration of, well, should it exercise its discretion to vary to resolve those ambiguities or uncertainties? Um, and the Commission made some interesting comments around, given that very low jurisdictional bar is the first step, it really emphasises uh, kind of the, the sensitivities in exercising the, jurisdiction, um, the discretion to actually vary, um, given how low that threshold bar is to, to get in there. Um, and ultimately the Commission uh, wasn't satisfied that it should exercise its discretion here. So it said in making that finding that, it, look, it's not necessarily a requirement to show a common intention of the parties as to an alternative uh, interpretation or um, wording of the clause in order to exercise that discretion. But if you're not able to show that common intention, then it's going to be kind of very rare circumstances that you're going to be able to get the Commission to exercise its jurisdiction, uh, exercise its discretion, sorry. Um, so here the Commission held that if it did exercise its jurisdiction, uh, it was going to either disadvantage or benefit the employees or the employer, depending on which way it went, um, without any kind of sensible parameters as to why it should be having that impact because they weren't able to show that common intention. 
Um, and the Commission made some comments around, uh, even though it has the power to make that order retrospectively, if it was going to be exercising the power retrospectively, um, then it was going to be even more difficult uh, to convince the Commission to exercise its discretion, um, particularly where there was no evidence as to common intention. So I think this decision is interesting um, because although the Commission leaves open the door to exercise the discretion to vary where you can't show common intention, it seems like it would be a very rare circumstance where the Commission would be prepared to and, and it's difficult to see what that might be, um, particularly where the order is going to operate retrospectively. And it's also an interesting read because um, the Commission makes some comments in relation to the difficulty in actually showing common intention as part of the bargaining process. And it's made those comments in the context of this Section 217 application. But I think those comments are equally relevant uh, to a consideration of what circumstances can you consider extrinsic materials as part of uh, interpreting an enterprise agreement um, where there is ambiguity. And it's something to be, I think, alive to and aware of um, are some of those difficulties in actually being able to show what common intention of parties is as part of bargaining. That's a really good point, Soph. And uh, as we know, uh, in, on the whole, enterprise agreements are generally uh, not uh, drafted in the most optimal way, if I can put it that way, in the sense that there are often ambiguities and uncertainties in drafting. It's just a function of the process. But I'd highly recommend, if you're an industrial relations practitioner that engages in enterprise bargaining frequently, do read this decision. Because what it does uh, highlight is, as I've said, the prospects of actually getting a variation to correct ambiguities on substantive entitlements where you don't have common intention it's very rarely going to happen, it's near impossible. And uh, there are ways to fix that. And one of, one of the best sources of material to help establish common intention on the meaning of otherwise ambiguous enterprise agreement terms is the explanatory material that's sent to employees ahead of a vote. They are parties to the agreement, together sometimes with the unions if they apply for coverage. But if you can identify in that material some explanations or examples about how the terms are intended to operate, then that will be admissible material in the event of any dispute about how the agreement works. And so if I think it'd be a pretty great material to point to to establish a common intention that might support one of these applications. And I think if you've got that material available to you, you might find that you'll get a different outcome to what was achieved in this case. So I think there's some room for improvement there in how employers approach the development of their explanatory material ahead of votes. And uh, there's much opportunity there to actually build in some extra material to help with the clarity of how the agreement is intended to operate. So something to bear in mind, do have a look at the case though, if you are engaged in enterprise bargaining processes, it might give you some ideas. Speaking of enterprise bargaining, brings us to case number five, the Virgin application to the Commission for an order under section 425 to suspend protected industrial action. Now, this is just a quick one, but it is a fascinating decision because the, roughly the same time that Virgin Australia Regional Airlines made this cooling off application, they also made an application that's uh, been reported to be the first application for an intractable bargaining declaration. Now, if that declaration is made, then immediately all industrial action must stop and they will enter a process which may well lead to a workplace determination, an arbitrated 
into bargaining by the Fair Work Commission. And what Virgin sought in its cooling off application was effectively to stop industrial action earlier whilst the parties were working through the application and, and hearing of the request for the intractable bargaining declaration. So really to bring forward the end to industrial action earlier than what might otherwise be the case. And I've got to say, so in reading this decision, it did feel like a bit of a stretch, I must say. Um, the commission, the union first submitted that, look, had the intent of this new legislation around intractable bargaining, had the intent been that industrial action stop whilst the parties worked through the intractable bargaining declaration application, then the legislation would have said so. Uh, the legislation doesn't, rather, its legislation has determined that the point at which the industrial action stops is only if the declaration is made. So it's fairly clear from the legislation there's no intent that industrial action stop beforehand and indeed the parties are expected that they'll continue to impose industrial pressure on each other whilst that process is, is being gone through in the hope that the parties might actually reach agreement in the meantime. The union also submitted that generally speaking cooling off applications are made in the hope that industrial action would stop so that parties could divert their attention to actually doing a deal in that the, it would actually assist the parties in reaching agreement. Now, that argument wasn't available to Virgin in this case because as part of their application for an intractable bargaining declaration, they were necessarily saying that it wasn't reasonably likely that the parties would otherwise reach agreement. That's precisely why they sought the intractable bargaining declaration. So as a result, the cooling off would not help the parties reach agreement because Virgin's position was that that was not possible. So um, the Fairwork Commission ultimately agreed with the union and said that the cooling off application, the power to suspend industrial action for a period was not intended to be used for this purpose, was not intended to give employers like Virgin some extra time without industrial action to prepare for their intractable bargaining application. And on that basis, the industrial action was allowed to continue. So the point that I take away from this, Sophie, is a point we've actually made on previous episodes of Inside IR. Intractable bargaining is not a quick and easy solution for employers. I think employers are going to have to expect that the threshold that the, employer, that the Fair Work Commission will apply to those applications is that they'll expect the bargaining participants to have gone through a quite extensive bargaining process, and that would include engaging in industrial action. And for that reason, I think employers need to, to the extent possible, and I note that some industries will find this harder than others, but to the extent possible, employers are going to have to be prepared to weather a period of industrial action prior to potentially ultimately getting through the intractable bargaining process and having their agreements arbitrated. So for employers interested in tractable bargaining, I, I do encourage you to have a look at our previous episode where we cover that in further detail because expecting to there be a lot of interest in that new jurisdiction of the Commission and uh, many applications to come. And hopefully, Rowan, at our next six-month review, we've got a, a virgin intractable bargaining decision we can talk to everyone about. I, I suspect we will, maybe even earlier than that. We'll watch this space. Which brings us to our sixth, uh, sixth and final decision, Soph, the Ausdrill application for approval of their enterprise agreement. Yeah, so this one is uh, the full bench decision in an appeal of a decision to reject the approval of an enterprise agreement um, made by Ausdrill. Uh, so it was an enterprise agreement which covered their employees in black coal mining operations. 
Um, so the relevant employees covered by the proposed agreement were all covered by the Black Coal Award, but then they fell into three different categories or cohorts uh, depending on the rest of their industrial instrument coverage and application. So the first category of employees, the award also applied to them. The second category of employees, the award applied to them, but they also had contracts of employment which incorporated the terms of an old enterprise agreement, uh, so which would continue to apply to them. And then there was a third category of employees who uh, the old enterprise agreement actually applied to them as a matter of law. And then they had contracts of employment which incorporated uh, those terms as well. And at first instance, the commission had rejected the approval of the enterprise agreement. And the reason for that is that as part of the uh, uh, explanation of terms and um, effect to employees prior to the vote, Osdrill had explained that employees' current terms and conditions were sourced either from the Black Coal Award or from this old enterprise agreement. And the commission, which was upheld by the full bench, um, held that that was incorrect in relation to that second category of employees. So the employees who I mentioned where the Black Coal Award applied to them and then they had contracts of employment which also incorporated the terms of this old enterprise agreement. Um, and that's because for that category of employees, their current terms and conditions were sourced both from the Black Coal Award and from this old enterprise agreement. Um, and so the full bench, as I mentioned, upheld the rejection of the agreement. Um, and the reason for that is that the Commission found that Osdrill had failed to take all reasonable steps to explain the terms of the agreement. And that's because it failed to provide accurate information to employees in that category too, concerning their current applicable terms and conditions. So by not telling those employees um, that had the contracts of employment which incorporated the old agreement that they were currently entitled to the award conditions, uh, they were not put in a position where they could then make an informed choice about the proposed agreement because they weren't given accurate information around their current terms and conditions. So I think this decision you know, emphasises obviously the importance of understanding the industrial arrangements that are applicable to employees, which can often be complex depending on the interaction of multiple instruments. Um, and I think that's only going to become more important um, given the Commission's statement on, of principles on genuine agreement, um, because that statement expressly says uh, that the explanation needs to include, at a minimum, explaining to employees how the proposed agreement is going to alter their existing minimum entitlements and other terms and conditions of employment, um, which wouldn't have been met in this case. Uh, and then also the statement of principles includes guidance that this requirement isn't going to be met, or sorry, generally won't be satisfied, if the employer makes an incorrect representation uh, or misleads employees about a significant term of a proposed agreement or its effect. Um, so I think there might only be kind of closer scrutiny in relation to how an employer explains the current terms and conditions of employment to their employees prior to the vote. Another reason to have a very close eye to your explanatory material that's delivered to employees ahead of the vote, Soph. It's uh, often a uh, very fertile ground for union challenge in these applications, as we all know. So there we have it. Our views on the top six cases since December 22 to June 2023 that IR practitioners need to know but might have missed. As always, we'd love to hear feedback on Inside IR, including on this new method of filming. Happy to take feedback on that. Um, please comment or direct message on LinkedIn or send us an email to insideir at hsf.com. Otherwise, 
Thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Inside IR.